Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. My guest today is Mike McCard, better known as Science Mike. He is the best-selling author of Finding God in the Waves, host of Ask Science Mike, and the co-host of the Liturgist podcast. He is a leading voice on matters of science and religion with a monthly reach in the hundreds of thousands. Among other outlets, Mike has written for Relevant, Don Miller's Storyline, Biologos, and the Washington Post. Mike lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife Jenny and his two daughters. So, Mike, thank you very much for being a guest this week on Voices in My Head. It is a pleasure to be here. And uh, listening to that bio, it's almost uh, fraudulent. It sounds so impressive. I hope your <laughs> listeners aren't disappointed when they actually hear me. Well, I'm sure a lot of them have probably listened to you before, so I'm sure they won't be disappointed. Uh, but if this is should happen to be something new, and if they have never uh, had the opportunity to hear you before or to read your new book, uh, I think that they are going to definitely be in for a treat today. Now, this is sort of off topic, but I just was looking over your calendar, and I see that you're going to be speaking at Northwest Nazarene University in February. And uh, I, I also am speaking at Northwestern Nazarene University in February, but I'm there about the week before you are. <laughs> All right. What a what an amazing coincidence. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. I was actually listening in to one of your more recent um, podcasts this morning, and you mentioned it. I was like, wait, I'm going to be there in February. So I actually had to look at the date to see if we were going to intersect. But as it happens, it's not the same week, unfortunately. But Oh, okay. Ah, uh, anyway, but you'll love the people out there. Brent is uh, I, I is the uh, the head of the religion department out there, so you'll probably have a chance to speak with him. But uh, I'm going out there. Uh, I know that you're a Methodist now, and I'm going out there to actually speak at the Wesley Conference that they're doing at that university. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so maybe we can get a little bit of uh, Methodist Wesley talk in today while we're discussing, too. Um now, I first became familiar with you through the Liturgist podcast, and so I'm just curious in your mind where um, where things kind of started clicking for you, where you started developing an audience, because um, I, the Liturgist was my first place, but I had a feeling as I listened that like a lot of people had, had kind of already heard you before from other programs, and then I heard uh, you on the Pete Holmes podcast, and I don't know chronologically where things started to fall, and then in reading your book, I saw that you were in Don Miller's movie, Blue Like Jazz, and so there's been different times. Where do you kind of trace your, your place? Because I know there's a, a transition phase where you kind of left your day jobs, but so to speak, and started moving into more of the realm of what you do now, but where do you kind of point you know, uh, the outlet that kind of gave you some notoriety there? Well, I think I'd start by saying uh, I'm really bad with... Uh, the chronology of events, how long ago things happened or in what order. Okay. Like to write my book, I had to do like a forensic examination of my own life. And I literally built a timeline of my life so that the book would be factually consistent. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And since a lot of that is uh, post book, it might not be on the timeline. But I would also say that um, the way I work is I am very present on a daily basis. So uh, I'm disciplined about putting everything into a calendar. And that means, uh, you know, I really look at what's happening today and in the next week or two in um, how I plan my work. So uh, from my own perspective, uh, this rise to being a public figure or whatever you want to call it sure. has been a series of days where I've been present and intentional. And it doesn't feel like there was just like a one thing that uh, got there. I think kind of roughly um, I've always been a speaker and a uh, blogger about technology and further into my career I started talking about marketing uh, so I had some degree of notoriety in those you know kind of small industry categories then I had this mystical experience with God that I talk about in the book and we sure. might unpack a little today sure. and I changed my blog overnight to talk about science and spirituality which cost me all of my readers hmm. so uh, I just completely destroyed my own platform wow and uh, and then I built a blog audience, uh, just a, first a few hundred, then a few thousand. Uh, I would occasionally have a post that did really, really, really well, hundreds of thousands, or even had one blog post that had a million uh, mm. unique visitors. But uh, mostly I was, I was way under the radar. Um, and it wasn't until uh, Rob Bell introduced me to Pete Holmes, and I went on the Pete Holmes podcast that any significant number of people started to follow my work. And that was around the same time that episode aired hmm. at almost the same time Michael Gunger and I started The Liturgists. Okay. So the one-two punch of Pete Holmes kind of introducing me to people and there being a venue to follow me in the form of The Liturgists and my blog yeah. uh, kind of started a small audience. Then we launched the Liturgist Podcast, and uh, the Liturgist Podcast grew very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and out of the Liturgist Podcast, uh, listeners of that show asked me to start Ask Science Mike, so I did. wasn't even my idea. And then that show grew very quickly, mm. and uh, and I was already doing a lot of speaking, but once we had the two podcasts... I am booked all year, uh, you know, as my calendar is completely full of speaking dates all the time. Wow. So that combination of um, the podcasting and speaking is the bulk of my platform. And then I've recently added uh, being an author to that mix. But I mainly write books for my existing audience. It's, I don't write books, you know, to try to uh, grow into new markets or anything like that. I, I'm very intentional what I do is um, serve a, a, a specific group of people. Sure. 
Well, and, you, and you're very good at what you do, so I, that's great to know because I think I've been listening to the Liturgist podcast just about from episode one, and uh, and it just seemed wow. like, again, it was like out of nowhere. It was like, like science, Mike is everywhere, you know? <laughs> but as they say, you know, um, you, you know, overnight success takes a long time, you know, like something like eight years or so to make an overnight success sometimes for a lot of musicians and people like that, so. Yeah, well, uh, I, I so. think I was I was really ahead of the game. Yeah. Because of my marketing experience, um, so once I decided I was going to do this, I've been extremely intentional. So I'd say my overnight success probably took three and a half years. So oh, that's that's, that's <laughs> I cut it about about in half. Yeah, that's fantastic though. That's really great. And I mean, the only real question that I wanted to ask about the podcast is when are you going to get a co-host that can actually play music? Because he's so awful. I can't. Imagine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I have no, a really no, hard no. time if uh, I think about Michael as a musician. Uh, yeah. Then it gets like intimidating to work with him. Well, he's he's so. Uh, I, I mean, he's just so smart and so many areas i think and he's he's so prolific in so many areas and and he too is a great author as well as a songwriter and you two just have such uh, a good chemistry together and and the conversations that you share and i actually met um uh michael and his wife years ago i was at a songwriters retreat in california and uh, and i would not expect them to remember me at all uh, but they i just remember them being so kind and and so gracious and and they just did a wonderful job uh leading music that time so that's that's probably my first time uh where i was drawn in uh to just the the kind of special thing that they do together so um mm -hmm. it's it's really great to to get to hear both of you and sometimes uh your wives are on the podcast too and i and i i love that you have created through the podcast, uh, a safe place to talk about things that a lot of times are not safe to talk about, unfortunately, in churches and in many places that Christians go. And so um, I, I applaud you in that because I really feel like you're doing uh, doing the Lord's work, no joke. I really do feel like you're doing some wonderful things through that. Thank you. Um, let me, I, I kind of want to talk, um, while, while we could go on probably a long time about your podcasts and what you do there, I really want to get into your book today. And so I'm just going to say to the listeners, if, if you're new to the, the liturgist podcast, or if you're new to the ask science, Mike podcast, um, please look those up. You are not going to be disappointed. You're going to find some wonderful and engaging conversations, some controversial conversations at time and some hard conversations, but they are necessary. They are good. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage everyone who's listening to this, if you have not heard them before to check that out, but I really want to go into your story and you can, give us as much of the Cliff Notes version as you want because I do want people to read your book but I, I want to it's it's really hard not to talk to you and not ask about some of that story because I do think it's a it's a powerful story that is going to be a help and has been a help to many people so your story kind of begins not the beginning of your life but your story of your new journey of faith and your journey of losing faith and coming back to faith it seems to all start with a divorce and not your divorce but your parents divorce and i wonder if you could maybe kind of start there and just tell us a little bit of this journey that you went on and and again give us as, as little or as much as you want and, and leave people hungry to read the book but it, it really I'd, I'd love for you to just share some of that story if you were able to sure I um, was a Southern Baptist and 
my parents were Southern Baptists. My aunts and uncles were Southern Baptists. Uh, just a, just a long line of, of conservative evangelical ideas in my family, multi-generationally. And, um, I liked being Baptist. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't a, a rebellious or angry Baptist. I liked the theology. I liked the way uh, we understood Scripture, and through Scripture we understood God. It gave me the tools to deal with most problems I found or approached in my life. Uh, I felt like God had a specific plan for me that I could find through the Bible and through the church's teachings which were always subordinate to the Bible. So when my Baptist music minister dad uh, told us that he was going to divorce my mom after more than 30 years of marriage, my first thought was, that's not biblical. Hmm. It's, it's like the most Baptist response you could right. possibly have. And uh, I told dad that what he was saying he was going to do was not biblical and challenged him as a believer to get his heart right with God. Now, this is a strange dynamic because my dad's like an alpha male jock, you know, former uh, military career law enforcement guy, mm. and I'm like a beta male computer nerd. So it's not normal for me to speak to my dad, you know, in a, in a way that's corrective. Um, but I felt as a man of God, it was necessary. Mm. And... Uh, so dad agreed to talk to me more about that and we were going to do a Bible study together. So I decided I needed to like review the entire Bible's contents. I was really familiar uh, with what Moses and Jesus and Paul had to say about divorce. But what if there was something in Leviticus that I had missed? What if there was a larger part of God's perspective that I didn't have? So I made a decision to read the Bible as quickly as I could. And I looked at an annual Bible reading plan, and I said, a year is just too long. And I looked at how long one day's worth of reading was, and it wasn't very much. So I decided to read four days every one day, which let me finish the Bible in three months, hmm. uh, which I did. And uh, I read the Bible four times in one year, basically with the goal of memorization. Uh, instead of answering my questions about divorce, reading the Bible turned me into an atheist. Hmm. And uh, for many people, that probably sounds absurd. For other people, that sounds really familiar. Right. Uh, but grappling with the text so intensely and all at once made me see problems in its pages I'd never noticed before. Problems about the way the Bible uh, tells a very different story about the formation of the universe than you know, like modern cosmology does. Mm -hmm. Uh, or even the way the Bible can contradict itself in depictions of not only the origin of everything, but the way Bible stories unfold uh, often contain apparent contradictions. Now, some people's theology would say that's not possible, but I'm telling you, in my reading of the Bible at that time, I found contradictions I couldn't possibly reconcile. Mm -hmm. uh, and wrestling with that, led me to the writings of skeptics and new atheists. And uh, over a period of months, piece by piece, my faith fell apart until I didn't believe in God anymore. Hmm. And I go into great detail about what my objections were and 
and how I wrestled with him in the book. Sure. Um, so here I am, a Southern Baptist deacon, Sunday school teacher, atheist. Hmm. Something's got to give. Um, and I was worried that if I kind of publicly proclaim that I didn't believe in God anymore, uh, I'd get kicked out of my social community and maybe maybe lose my marriage. Hmm. Right. So I, my ideas about marriage were pretty fragile at this point because a marriage I thought was unbreakable was breaking. Hmm. I did not want my marriage to follow suit. So I decided to not tell anyone I didn't believe in God, which was incredibly difficult sure. because losing God for me was uh it's like losing a loved one hmm. um because god was always i always felt closer to god than any anybody um i had a very very deep devout faith and um i i pretended to be an atheist for a couple of years i wrestled with meaning i became a humanist i connected with atheists online and i kept up the 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 act with people I knew in the real world. And it was, it was, it was exhausting. Yeah. Absolutely. Psychologically exhausting. Yeah. That's, I, I've just, to interject for just a moment, I didn't mean to take you off your train of thought, but I, you know, when, when Brennan Manning talks a lot about the mask that people wear, or even Thomas Merton, when he's talking, talking about uh, the mask or, or the imposter, um, that that's probably the best way I can think to describe that. Who, who I too, as a pastor, have had some times in my ministry. I actually went through a divorce myself in ministry, and um, while that was happening, I had a similar crisis of faith, and mine didn't go on as long. But I so remember that feeling of thinking, I, "I'm a complete fake," and I've I, I I'm already hurting. I'm already in pain. I don't know what to do with it, and. I've just got to keep being fake because I can't let anybody see the the wounds. You know, they're there. Uh, so just coming from that standpoint, sorry for, for messing up your story, but I, I, I really resonated with that part of your story in the book, having been there myself. And um, and so I, I appreciate your transparency in telling that. I think it's rare that people are, are that open and honest about it. But anyway, well, please, please continue. I, ha I had to be for a couple of reasons. Um, one, there's a lot of people in the church that misuse the word atheist. And in order for true skeptics and true atheists to understand that I understand them, I had to lay all my cards on the table and mm. show that I don't use the word atheist as some edgy form of church marketing. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> but then also for people who are struggling through doubt, I can't offer a real sense of, of solidarity unless I'm completely open and transparent right. about my own experience. The downside of that is uh, some people read Finding God in the Waves and are exposed to some of the ideas of atheism for the first time, mm. uh, which is something I worried about when I wrote the book. But ultimately I decided for people in a comfortable sort of Christianity, there's a lot of resources for them already. For people in an uneasy place between unbelief and belief hmm. uh there's not a lot of resources there's plenty of people who will convince you why you shouldn't believe and people who would convince you why you should but very few who will sit with you in that middle place and say i get it yeah uh, which is also uh, uh, one thing i want the book to do is is help people 
who feel comfortable in their faith understand on a deep level why other people don't have that same comfort. Sure. So here I was, uh, uh, an adult atheist, secret agent, basically. Hmm. Um, and my wife figured out what was going on. She told my mom and has created like a small circle of people in my life who knew that I was an atheist. And uh, to make a book-length story podcastable, sure. I ended up going to a conference for pastors about creativity. And uh, I had a confrontation with a room full of pastors about their understanding of atheism. Hmm. And through their gracious response, um, was able to see a future where I could where I could have fellowship with Christians and not be one. Hmm. Um, and then I had an uh, incredible mystical experience where I heard uh, Jesus speak to me hmm. and stood in the presence of God uh, on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. Two completely ridiculous claims. Um which, if you're curious about, I would I, I spend a lot of time on those in yeah, the book. Yeah, you got to read the book for sure. But <laughs> um, but that, to, to, you know, for anyone who's listening that's skeptical, it's like that's ridiculous. I understand it's ridiculous, but I am relaying my lived experience. Um, mm -hmm. And for anyone who's like, oh wow, who's a person of faith, it's like that sounds in incredible. But mm -hmm. I, I'm also a little curious or skeptical. Like incredible detail in the book, which. By the way, is incredibly well written. So um, <laughs> it is, um, and so that kind of is the arc. The problem is, after I had this encounter with God, it's not like a happily ever after story. Mm -hmm. I still had all the same doubts and objections to the idea of God I had five minutes before I had these mystical experiences. Um, and in fact, I was so skeptical that my first reaction to this beautiful light that I saw was to go to the hospital and get a CAT scan to see mm. if I had a brain tumor. Wow. When I didn't have a brain tumor was to see a series of psychiatrists and psychologists to uh, tell them I was having hallucinations and concerned about my mental health. Mm. Uh, and it was only after I was cleared of any brain problems or uh, you know, mental illness or disorder that I started to examine uh, where that light could have come from. Hmm. And that led me not initially into searching scriptures or theology, but into studying cosmology, quantum physics, and ultimately neuroscience to understand how people can know God. Hmm. And that is the, actually the foundation of my faith. Um, physics and brain science <laughs> which is a really interesting journey and and you do a wonderful job chronicling so much of this in the book and so i really appreciate that but um but and and the story about about you in the waves and and finding god on the waves is you know sort of this um amazing beautiful moment um and and i i wonder you you probably do have a lot of people that ask you you know, again, as you've kind of reiterated, was that real? Are you really, you know, telling the story? <laughs> but but at the same time, a lot of people are going to hear that 
that are people of faith and go, oh yeah, no no problem at all with that. Um, so I, I'm curious about um, if you don't mind, I want to kind of work because you're you're a part of a Methodist church now, unless you've changed since writing the book, which I don't think you have. No, uh, and, still a good Samaritan. Okay, I love it. Okay, very good. And uh, I'm a part of the Church of the Nazarene, and we we actually stem off from uh, the Methodist Church, and so there's a lot of commonality that's there. And I I'd love to ask you this question that's sort of based on that sort of Wesleyan tradition of things. Are are you familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral? The Wesleyan quadrilateral is why I joined the Methodist Church. Okay, great. All right. I thought, I wondered if that was possibly it because it wasn't until I was in college studying for ministry that it first, like, kind of dawned on me. And so I, I've been wanting to for some time, and I'm so glad you knew it, just to kind of pick your brain a little bit about um, your journey out of faith, back into faith, and having maybe an incorrect relationship with the Bible. Do, do you think some of the problem with, you know, what why you lost faith in the first place is that you, like many people, and myself included, the way we were raised, we're trying to make the Bible function in a way that the Bible was never intended to function? And I, I've, I've just been curious to ask you, because I think the quadrilateral is something that kind of helps us even out on that with its emphasis on on um, scripture and experience and, and tradition and 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 any one of the, um, the 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 quadrilateral by itself you can get a little bit lopsided but anyway I, I just scripture reason tradition experience I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that um, so yeah I'm not sure if I asked the question well, but <laughs> but you said that the quadrilateral is why you're in the Methodist Church, so I'd just love to hear more about that. Sure. I, well, you know, um, as a Baptist, uh, there was one particular idea in the Reformation that they really latch on to, uh, sola scriptura, uh, mm -hmm. scripture alone, all you need to know and follow God is the Bible. And the Bible stands alone. And so what they say is just read the Bible as it is, uh, and you, and you get God that don't interpret the Bible. Just read it as it is. That's impossible. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can't read something without the act of reading something is the act of interpreting it. Hmm. And so three people can read the same passage and take three different things. And if they all apply those as fact claims, <laughs> we have a problem. Right. In fact, that's how churches split. One of the ways churches split. Um, and as I studied the Bible more, as I started to fall in love with the Bible again, uh, I was exposed to better scholarship and, and not only better, but more diverse scholarship. I understood there's a lot of ways to read ancient literature. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd heard the word, uh, hermeneutic before, but when Baptists use hermeneutic, the assumption is there's one right one and all the other ones are wrong. <laughs> right. And I started to understand that scholars approach hermeneutics or way of reading, interpreting scripture more prescriptively and with a state of humility, meaning it is actually impossible for us to read a given part of the Bible in the exact social and linguistic context it was written in it's hmm. that you can't do it and 
I thought that um, was a huge insight. Hmm. So I started to read the Bible, understanding that in some ways it was actually impossible for me to completely recover the author's intent. Like any historian, we're taking fragments of history and trying to build a mosaic that resembles uh, the original picture, but understanding we will never get it right. Um, and then I also, I actually probably have a, a, a different view of scripture even than is, is the normal orthodoxy in the Wesleyan church because the, the, the Wesleyan idea I think is still, I think it's prima scriptura. So scripture, it's not scripture alone, but scripture is still primary. Sure. Right. Whereas I would probably have a more, um, scripture is an ingredient in the recipe. <laughs> right. That is encountering God. Sure. And for me, the quadrilateral of reason, tradition, experience, and scripture, they're all very important. Tradition, because I can see how different people through church history have responded to God in the Bible, and that can inform my experience. Reason, because our reason is an excellent means um, with training uh, and with with methodology to uncover truth uh, about the world. In our experience, because so much of God is known only through experience. That's why I'm a, like a Wesleyan mystic. <laughs> sure, right. Yeah. And so it's all those things working together that, uh, that allow me to encounter God. And some of those things really are scripture in the Bible. Part of understanding the tradition of faith is to read the Bible and read the stories of people of faith portrayed within it. Sure. Um, part of, um, sorry, I've got, I've got something dinging here and I keep trying to turn it off. <laughs> I was wondering what that was. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I've got volume off on every device. Everything's muted. I might turn them off. I don't know. That never happens. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> iOS is just really buggy these days. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, it seems like it. Um, so all those things happen together and then the, I have experiences as I read scripture um, but, but using a quadrilateral allows my, especially my experience and my reason to live in harmony instead of contradiction. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of have a mental place for some things, even that seem uh, ridiculous or counterintuitive sure. without abandoning reason. Sure. So, um, that's really when, 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 uh, my pastor explained the quadrilateral to me, it was really life giving. Yeah. Um, and it made me feel less weird and less alien sure. that this was a faith that was more flexible, that had room for different uh, interpretations or understandings, uh, and really honored a more, a more full human embodiment of the Christian faith. Sure. Well, and, and that's to me, it was also a breath of fresh air when I when I discovered it as well. And of course I've been in the Wesleyan tradition my whole life, but it wasn't until college that I even ever heard that term. Cause I, I think depending on the church we grow up in, we're a, a lot of uh, Protestant churches are, even if they aren't Calvinist, they're more Calvinist than they think in the solo scripture <laughs> area. And, um, and you know, it was, it was a real revelation to me. I spent uh, a couple of years ago, just really studying a lot of, of Jewish scholars and, 
and helping having them uh, as I read them helped me understand more about the way that the Bible was written in the first place and and to me the Bible became so much more freeing when I stopped looking at it sort of as an answer book and more as a, as something that is to stretch me and make me ask questions and it's to make me argue with it and it's to make me look at things in new ways and you find other books of the Bible that are like fighting with other books of the Bible you know and so it, when you go in with that um, whole mindset that sometimes we're brought up with that, that the Bible can only mean one thing and it'll never contradict itself you're you're right off the bat setting up a person for a fall I think and and trying to make the Bible function in a way it was never intended to function and um, so there's such a, a freeing a freedom in that quadrilateral so I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to talk about that a little bit I had wondered mm. if that was part of the draw uh, to Methodism because it certainly is one of the reasons that I've stayed in the tradition that I am in for sure although I'm very drawn to the Orthodox Church I really <laughs> find a lot of my theology uh, to be shaped by that as well but um, anyway just yeah I, I have the same tension I love Orthodox theology um, I find the the way Orthodox theology is put into practice is often very exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I'd almost I, I, if you could combine Orthodox theology with the openness of Methodism, I, I'd be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plus, I'm just terrible at growing a beard, and I feel like I wouldn't be accepted unless I could grow like a really thick, shaggy beard to be in uh, the Orthodox Church. It seems like. But now, yeah. from that metric, I could probably like <laughs> run the Orthodox Church. I, I, can, I can go an impressive beard. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I, we're running close on time, but I, I want to reiterate to everyone that if you've not had a chance to one uh, read "Finding God in the Waves" by Mike McCard. I really want to encourage our listeners to try to find a copy of that book. And and if you can, um, I was pleased to find that you're the reader of it on the Audible edition as well. So um, talk about, you know, being on the Voices in My Head podcast. You were literally one of the voices in my head as I was, <laughs> as I was reading the book and going through it. So I want to direct our listeners to that, also to the Liturgist podcast and to the Ask Science Mike podcast. Um, and just a couple more things I want to ask you before we have to end the conversation for today um, because I often wonder you must have people just constantly asking you things or coming up to you sending you emails Um, and so one of the things I wanted to ask you was what is a question that you wish you were asked more often that you never seem to be asked is there something that like man I wish somebody would just let me talk about this once in a while because I never get (laughs) a chance to I'd be really curious if there was anything like that Oh, gosh, I like just straight-up science questions. Science and questions. And I get mostly the intersection of science and faith questions, which I understand. And then, like, Dear Abby advice questions. <laughs> uh, I miss getting questions about particle physics or cosmology or, or some of those other things that I study a lot. Sure. Um, and I've noticed that if people ask me science questions anymore. They're really informed science people who have already checked all the experts. So instead, they ask me like unanswerable science <laughs> questions. So I guess what I miss most is answerable 
science questions. Okay, <laughs> right. I get, and I wish I had a good science question to ask you because I really don't. I'm I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as you are. So anything that I would ask would probably just be uh, a question. You're like, oh, ho hum. But uh, but you know, I have one that it's it's sort of that intersection of of faith and and science question. And and I'm just curious about this. Um, why do you think? Because really, this is something that that just has has been so like not an issue for me for so long. Um, but why do you think in churches it is such a huge, huge deal um, the debate between like creationism, evolution? Because it just feels like to me like that's such a I don't want to say minor part like of scripture, but that's not what scripture's really kind of getting at in the poetry and Genesis at the beginning. And I, I maybe maybe I'll just pick your brain with that. Why why do you think we're so fascinated with that? Because for some people they have been taught that the essential role of Genesis is to describe the creation process. Like there's literally large, well-funded institution whose primary miss- mission is to reinforce that idea, hmm. um, and it becomes associated with an understanding of the Bible and therefore of God. So it's not just you're not just talking about evolution or creationism. Hmm. You're talking about the nature of God and scripture and revelation Hmm. um so it's a it's a it's a single issue that unpacks fundamental differences in worldviews Hmm. um and since worldviews are so closely associated with our identity we tend to be extremely aggressive in defending our identity Hmm. and therefore our ideas about god Hmm. um so from a social science perspective it makes all the sense in the world you have competing social identities that are fundamentally incompatible. Hmm. That's a good answer. So that see, I, I, I sort of that's about as sciencey as I can get in that question. <laughs> that's today, a good one. Jay. That's a great one. Um, I, I almost forgot. I did have one question from one of the listeners that I wanted to ask you, and and I told her if I had time, I would ask. So I'll probably just let this be my final question today. Um, okay. But this this listener's name is Michelle Gill. And uh, she works with uh, millennials, and a lot of them have walked away from faith and walked away from church. And the reason, she says, seems to be that there seems to be um, a lack of authenticity with matters of social justice uh, on one extreme, all the way to just they're just not buying into it anymore. Maybe they've kind of had an experience like you had in some way. Um, Her question is, and I think it's a good one, um, how would you interact with someone who's become agnostic in a way that doesn't push them away further? I would be their friend. Hmm. Yeah, just being uh, open to them without the expectation. <laughs> that without any expectation. To, yeah, right. That, I've never had an expectation associated to believe in a single social interaction uh, since I became an atheist. Hmm. Um, what, what is our job to sell Jesus is our job to go, go ye therefore and convince the world via intellectual argument. Uh, no, that's a, that's a, a 
just a it's a bad reading of scripture. Yeah. Um to make a disciple be a good friend. To make a disciple reveal the reality of a risen Christ with your life. Hmm. Um, be an empty tomb. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and none, none of that has anything to do with talking to an agnostic and creating a convincing argument or subtle social pressure that moves them back towards some categorical understanding of theism. Hmm. Our faith isn't set of intellectual postulates. Hmm. Our faith is an incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is lived. It is worked out. It is wrestled with. It's not Wikipedia. <laughs> so honor someone's questions. If they if they if they if they doubt, ask them why, and just listen, and offer no response other than thanks for telling me that. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful answer. I really appreciate that, and I find that that doubt so often is such an important part of the journey to faith and through faith. And um, so yeah, so thanks Michelle Gill for that question. Thanks Mike for. Uh, taking time today to be on the Voices in My Head podcast. Uh, once more, I do want to direct all of our listeners uh, to MikeMcCarg.com. That's M-I-K-E-M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E.com, and you'll be able to find out more about him. You can look him up on Amazon. You can find him on, on the podcast space. Basically, just look up Science Mike. That's the easiest way. Go online, and you'll be able to find... Uh, pretty much everything I think that that you have out there and uh, it's been a real joy and I just want to say thank you again um, for creating those safe spaces for people to ask questions for people to have their doubts and for people to be able to uh, walk alongside and you know when you said uh, just be their friend I feel like in many ways although you don't get to meet many of the people that you're interacting with I feel like uh, you and Michael both have been great friends to many people and uh, and that's very one of the most christ-like things i i can really i guess as a compliment say to anyone so thank you so much for the the time today and thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week thanks so much it's been a pleasure thank you for joining me here this week on the voices in my head podcast i hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com follow me on twitter at rickleyjames like my artist page on facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on Amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the Internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.